0: You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Turn to Matthew chapter 3 chapter 3. I, I have, um, I have uh, been working hard to uh, settle down into uh, the next quarter of sermons. I usually have that out by now, but um, whatever reason, the Lord is uh, well, making it a little more difficult this time than it usually is. Uh, of course, I'm going to blame it on Him, right? That's what we do when things aren't going our way. We blame it on Him, but that's not the case at all. I it's taking a little more time for me to hear and, and kind of understand where God would have us go over the next several weeks. So uh, just been listening to him week by week and making sure that we follow him and, and everywhere that we've been up to this point has been where God wanted us to be. And so I'm still working on that and it'll, uh, it'll be out there eventually. I promise you that. Uh, you may be surprised when I tell you this, but um, when I came up through uh, Bible college and seminary. Uh, they, they left out a real practical side of ministry that um, I would have really appreciated if they had helped me with, and that's how to do baptisms. Uh, now, they may, they may do this now. They may uh, take the classes out and, and take those who are uh, called to pastoral ministry uh, through that process, but I, I did not receive any instruction on how to actually do a baptism. So, uh, as you can imagine, I've had some interesting mishaps uh, down through the years as I got accustomed to doing this. I mean, it would make sense that they would that they would train you with this. I mean, think about it. You got you got somebody who's very nervous, the pastor, who's who's going to be baptizing someone who is equally as nervous or more so, and, and you're going to be getting into a big tank of water. There's a lot that could go wrong there. So I, I think some practical steps would be very helpful. So. When I entered into the ministry full-time, uh, the pastor I was serving with, he probably wasn't three or four months in, uh, I led a uh, teenager to Christ, and he said, you're going you're gonna to baptize her. Well, that just sent fear through my, through my bones, because at the time, I was still in Bible college. At that point, I haven't even entered seminary, and I was, now I was learning and applying as I went. And, and my senior pastor, he didn't give me any advice or any instruction. He said, there's the water. Make sure you put her under. Okay. Uh, so we're going to go with this. Well, I spent a lot of time thinking about what I was going to say and, and what I was going to do, but I, I didn't spend any time walking into the baptistry, getting used to the mechanics of baptism, because there's, there's a lot to it. Now, from your perspective, it didn't look like much, right? I mean, you get in water, you push somebody in the water, you bring them up. But let me tell you, there's more to it than that. Or maybe I'm making it out to be more than that, but I'm telling you, I, I stress over stuff like this, and I needed some instruction, and, and, and my pastor said, baptizer. Okay, so we get up to the day, and the, the baptistry's full of water. I did not even go upstairs to where the baptistry was. I was so focused on what I was going to say, I didn't think about the mechanics. And my, the pastor I was serving with, he was uh, six foot four, big guy, tall. And we always did our baptisms right before second service, so we would have to, you know, come back and get into the service after the baptism was done. So one of the ways we would speed this up, or one of the one ways he sped it up, is he wore waders, fishing waders. Well, I didn't think about him being six foot four and his waders being five foot nine. So I go up and I'm getting ready for the baptism, and I put his waders on because I didn't have a set, and I thought this is going to be a problem. So I, the only thing I needed to do was just to roll the, the waders down all the way around me. I'm like, okay, I'm good to go. I didn't have any straps on. I just had waders on. And I, I fish a lot in the river. So, you know, I thought I, I, thought I had this. So I get in the water. I am, I am nervous. And let me just say this. When, when the pastor's nervous, it makes the candidate 50 times more nervous, okay? And, and so she's feeding off my nervousness, and I'm feeding off hers. This is not going to go well. I just wanted to get her out of there without drowning her. So we get in the water, and I go through my thing, and I, I think I said all the right things. I'm not sure. I know I was stressing over that. But when I laid her back in the water, I dipped in a little too low. So 50 gallons of water went into my waders. <laughs> now, for you, for you science types, or for those of you who are wired scientifically, you know that a gallon of water weighs 8.3 pounds. Well, you do the math a size extra large waders full of water up to my chest inside the waders. I can't hardly move. It took me, the, the choir was already in the second song before I got out of the baptistry because I got 600 pounds of water and I had taken, if you remember the Ghostbusters movie, Stay Puff Man, there you go. I'm having to like get one leg up and another leg up. And the pastor said when I got out, the water level went down a foot when I got out. And then Monday morning, Monday morning, the, the, the janitor came, was at my office when I got there, and she wanted to know why the whole third floor was flooded with water. Because I had to hurry and get out of the waiters to get back into the service. So guess what happened to all that water? It was spilled all over the carpeted floor. My suit was soaking wet. I was sitting in the front row. When I got up off the few, pew, the pew was wet because my pants were soaking wet. I didn't have any other clothes to change into. So I got back down dripping into the service just to get through it. That was my first experience. Second experience. This, I think this was maybe a few months later. Um, pastor uh, had someone come to faith in christ during the service and this guy was this guy was big he's a big guy uh bigger than our pastor not only in height but just mass this guy's big pastor says you're, you're baptizing him next sunday all right good day i'm ready this time i got my waiters i'm good to go no problem but i didn't consider the fact this guy was as big as he, he had to weigh 240 250 big guy so i've got everything fl- planned out i've got it all figured out and and I met with him before. I did all the right things. And we're standing at the top of the steps while the congregation is doing the first song. And he leans over to me and he says, By the way, I'm scared to death of water. (laughs) And also, um, I can't stand to have my face go under the water. And I'm looking at the size of this guy and I'm like, This is not going to go well. It's not going to go well at all. And all I can do to think, all I can think to say to him is, is, Well, dude, you're going under. So you just. Just follow my lead, bro. You're going under. Because if the one thing the pastor told me, make sure they go all the way under. You're going under. So I go through. I get all my stuff right. I'm good to go. I got my waders on. I'm all ready to go. And I'm, he's like here. And I, I, you know, in the name of the Father, name of the Son, and Holy Spirit. And I I go to laying him back. I have to walk to lay him back. When his face goes under the water, when his nose went under the water, this man went bonkers, went nuts. The water went up his nose. His feet float up, and he starts splashing the water like this. And because your pastor's a servant, he's got to serve his heart. He just backed up. And this man's thrashing. There's water going everywhere. He's going over the glass into the, bad, into the choir. What do you do? This guy's big. He's going to knock me out. I'm not, I just backed off. And finally, he got his feet under him. And I helped him out. He's just coughing and hacking. There's stuff coming out of his sinuses. I won't give you any details, but it was it was bad, just really bad. I'm sure that's on video somewhere. I'd love to have a copy of that. I really would. Every baptism is special. Not that kind of special, but special in a lot of ways. And um, every every baptism that I've had the honor to participate in. And by the way, it is, it is an incredible honor to have that moment in time with the family, with that person. Uh, it, it's an incredible honor. And um, I'm always humbled when I get to participate in a baptism. But every baptism is special, and every person has a, has a unique story. This is why we ask our baptismal candidates to, to share their, their, how they came to faith in Christ. And Every story is unique. Some, sometimes they're really short and really simple and really quick, and sometimes they, they just blow your mind. And it's a beautiful thing. Um, and every baptism is a celebration, a celebration that a person has followed the commandment of Christ in baptism. And, and so today the, the I want to take just a little bit of time to uh, speak, speak directly to your heart concerning baptism. Uh, oftentimes the only time I get to speak about Baptism is when we're actually doing a baptism. But I want to take today and, and, and speak about it because I know, I know that there are several adults in our church who've just kind of been holding off. Some of it's because of your schedule. Some of it's been because of work-related stuff. But for some, there's other reasons. Fear. Listen, I understand that. I, I was baptized in a river when I was 16 years old in the middle of March. It was freezing cold. And it, it took a lot um, for, for me to, to get in front of people to do that. I wasn't an out-front person. Uh, and it, I know I understand the courage. I understand the fear. I understand the trepidation from, from following through with baptism. So why do we baptize as a church? Why, why do we as a church baptize? Listen, our denomination as Southern Baptists, we, we, we want to baptize. But that's not the reason we baptize. It's not because we're Southern Baptists. We have Baptists in our name. We baptize because Christ commanded that we baptize so much so that in the greatest command that's ever been given to the church and that is to go make disciples of all nations he would add in that mission statement for the church go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in a Trinitarian formula, in other words, by the Father, by the Son, by the Holy Spirit. So when you see me baptized and you hear me say those words, I do that in, in obedience to what the Great Commission tells us to do. So we baptize not because our denomination requires it, not because this church leadership body has said this is what we're going to do. We baptize because the Scripture clearly commands it. Now, you've, you've got to wrestle with this. You've got to wrestle with this part. So, so if, if Christ has commanded it, then, then it's not an option. It's not something in gray area that we, we either accept or don't, and it's no big deal. If, if Christ has commanded that we baptize and that you, as a Christ follower, surrender yourself to what Christ has told us to do, then to not do so, to not be baptized, is to live in disobedience. I wish I could soften that up for you, but I can't because scripture is very clear about this. So, so what about this? What about what about is it, is 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 baptism then required for salvation? We have, we have a lot of churches in this area that teach exactly that. That yes, it's faith in Jesus, yes, it's repentance, but it's also baptism. And you're not a Christian until you get baptized. The scriptures do not teach that baptism is required for salvation. If baptism were required for salvation, then that turns salvation into a works based uh, exercise. And therefore, it could not be part of the gospel. The gospel is very clear. The Bible is very clear about the gospel that it is not some work that we do, whether you're getting dumped in water, whether you're partaking in communion, or whether you're telling other people about Jesus. Those are not requirements for salvation. What is required for salvation is faith, believing, with repentance, saying, I'm turning away from my sinful life and I turn my life over to you, Christ. That is what is required for salvation. So baptism is not required for salvation. Well, why is it that we baptize by immersion, by putting you under? Wouldn't it be a lot easier if we just sprinkled or maybe poured some water on them? And there's been a few times where we've, where we've had to pour water. We had a gentleman, if you don't remember, long, not many years ago, um, he's in Texas now. Uh, Duan, you know, he was a paraplegic, and there was no way we could get him in the baptistry. So we, we kind of switched it up a little bit to, to to help him to be able to make that profession of faith public. But why do we baptize by immersion? Well, first of all, not to take anything away from our brothers and sisters in the Methodist church or the Presbyterian church or the non-denominational church who choose to sprinkle or pour. I, I'm not going to throw them under the bus. I'm not going to be derogatory towards them. I love them. If they put their faith in Jesus Christ they're our brothers and sisters in Christ, they've chosen a different mode of baptism. Maybe you were sprinkled. Maybe, you were, maybe they were poured water upon you, when you were, maybe when you were an infant. Here's, here's the issue, folks. The issue is is that when I look at the New Testament, when this church looks at the New Testament, here's what we find. We find immersion over and over and over again. So the reason we practice baptism by immersion is because we see Jesus being immersed in the Jordan River, which we're going to look at in just a few minutes. We see all through the New Testament church that the mode of baptism is immersion. And we as a church and we as a denomination have chosen that we want to follow Jesus as closely as we possibly can. So we're going to follow him into those baptismal waters. And yes, we're going to be stuck under the water. Now, if you come from a different background, you disagree, that's fine. No problem. But as a church body, We're going to stick you under. We're going to stick you way under. And yes, we're going to bring you up. I promise you that. I've gotten a lot better. I've gotten a lot better at it. Okay? So, why should you be baptized? Let's take a look at verse 13 in chapter 3 of Matthew. Then Jesus came from Galilee to, to the Jordan to John. That's John the Baptist. To be baptized by him. John would, have, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Father." We, we pause in this moment because we don't want any kind of denominational differences to cloud where we want, what we want to proclaim today. We don't want any fear. We don't want any uh, anxiety to prevent hearing what you have to say. So Father, we state at the very beginning that as a church body, our authority is your word. How we practice our faith is based upon your word. And Father, we don't always get that right. Sometimes we miss it by a mile, but Father, our desire is to honor you through your word and to do exactly what you've asked us to do. So, Father, I pray that you would peel back any of the anxiety, uh, the fear. For that person who's put their faith in you and have come from death and the life, I pray, Father, that you give them a, a sense of peace, a sense of desire to follow through. A sense, Father, that they have to make the next step of obedience and following you through baptism. We love you. We thank you for our time together today. In Christ's name, amen. The three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give us pretty much the same account. I was going to be in Luke today, as you'll notice in your bulletin, but for some reason I ended up back over Matthew, and that's where I want to be today. All three of the Gospels give you the same account. There's a little bit of variation. Then when you get to John, he gives you the perspective of Jesus' baptism through John the Baptist. So his version is a little bit different, but it's it's covered nonetheless. So this event is covered in all four of the Gospels, and that should cause us to pause. Jesus has been in Nazareth. Jesus has been in Joseph's Joseph's wood carpentry shop for all of his adolescent life, all the way up into his adult life. Now, the world was expecting Messiah to come, and then in Bethlehem, there's the declaration that Messiah has come. But I have to wonder if the world just hasn't moved on. Jesus has come in Bethlehem, and and then he's going to be raised, and we don't have any idea of what was going on with Jesus' life past the age of about 12. That's that's where Luke leaves us kind of in the dark, and the rest of the gospel accounts gives us nothing as, as far as Jesus as a teenager. So so Jesus, the best we can tell is with Mary and Joseph, he's being raised in Nazareth. He's being raised in the carpenter shop. The people immediately in Nazareth would have known that, that Jesus has made a, there's a declaration that he's the son of God, that he's the Messiah, but people are still kind of watching and waiting and I'm not so sure that the world was really, at that point, looking to Jesus completely. So here's John the Baptist, the one who had been foretold by Malachi and other prophets that there would be a, a new prophet that would come. Now, you've you got to understand that the time in which Jesus was living, there had been a long period of silence. With the respect of Jesus being born in Bethlehem and that birth being announced to the shepherds in the fields, pretty much there had not been a move of God in over 400 years. And the people were anticipating something to happen. Imagine, God not speaking, no miracles, no anything other than Jesus' birth, There's been 400 years of absolute silence, no miracles, no prophets. John the Baptist, John the Baptist had been set aside even in his mother's womb to be the messenger of God, to prepare the way for the Messiah. So John begins his ministry. And instead of going to the temple, instead of going to the streets of Jerusalem, John the Baptist goes out into the wilderness along the Jordan River. And he's out there preaching repentance. In other words, John the Baptist, his ministry was preaching to the nation of Israel that they would return to God. You see, by the time John the Baptist starts preaching, they had become so legalistic, they had become so distant from God. They had had continued in the cycles of their forefathers of repentance, but then turning cold towards God and then just going through the rituals. And that's where they were, the Pharisees and the Sadducees leading the charge. So John the Baptist is preaching. And people are gathering. Now, some of the people who were coming, they were just just going out to see the show. They were just going out to see this guy who's out there with uh, a loud voice yelling and screaming at the Jordan River, proclaiming that the nation should repent. Others would go out there to critique. The Pharisees would show up, and they wanted to make sure that the message this man was preaching was in line with the Old Testament, so, so they would go out and they would critique and they would turn their nose up at John the Baptist because here's a man who's proclaiming that as a, as a symbolism of your repentance and your brokenness before God, that you come down into this river and you be, you be immersed into this water. That was the message John was preaching. Now get this picture. The people are coming from all over the place, predominantly Jews, and they're, they're making their way out to this wilderness location where John the Baptist, and there's one man among the crowd that Really, nobody really knows. Maybe a few.
1: But among the crowd is Jesus. And he has
0: left Galilee. He's left Nazareth. And he's made his way down south to where John the Baptist is baptizing. Now, if you remember, when John the Baptist was inside his mother's womb, and when Mary came and got close to his mother, that John leaped in the womb. The Bible says that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb of his mother. It's incredible. So Jesus is now walking among the masses of people, making their way to the Jordan River. Jesus didn't have a sign around his neck saying, hey guys, I'm the Messiah. He didn't have a sign around his neck that said, hey, I'm sinless. Hey, I'm not coming down here to repent. Although, Jesus didn't come to repent. He he came for a whole other set of reasons to be baptized. The rest of the crowd is coming because some of them want to truly repent, to turn from their evil, and to restore their faith in God. And
1: Jesus is among the crowd. And there's only one person
0: that's really going to recognize Him for who He is. That's John the Baptist. John the Baptist is maybe down in the river, and he's preaching strongly that the people should repent. And as he looks across the crowd, just like I do when I'm speaking to you, I look across the crowd. If my eyes lock with you, that doesn't really mean anything. It just means I'm looking at the crowd. Okay. It doesn't mean I'm preaching at you. It just means that I'm looking at the crowd. John's looking at the crowd and he's proclaiming this message of repentance and his eyes come around and he locks on one person, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. and. John is blown away. The day that has been foreordained before the creation of the world in eternity past that Jesus Christ would come forward out of the masses of people and he, he will be baptized by John the Baptist.
1: John looks at him and says, Behold,
0: the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And Jesus walks down out of the crowd. And what's amazing to me about this is that even at the very beginning, even at his birth, Jesus is with the lost and broken people. No place to lay his head. The inn is full. He's in a, in a stockyard with animals. Instead of a palace where he belongs, he's, he's born into the filthy dirtiness of a, of a barnyard. Then he's raised in Nazareth,
1: and the common statement about Nazareth is there's nothing good in Nazareth.
0: Nothing ever good came out of Nazareth. And then he leaves Nazareth, and he's walking with the masses of lost, broken people. He's with the broken people. And then in that place where all these broken people have have gathered together, some of them wanting to truly repent, Jesus comes out of the masses of brokenness, walks down into the water. John says, this man, I'm not even worthy to touch his sandals. And and John doesn't even want to baptize him. John is overwhelmed with the moment. Notice, John would have been prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Now think about John the Baptist. Here is the Son of God.
1: Incarnate God in the flesh. And John is going to baptize the Son of God. And Jesus says, verse 15, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us
0: to fulfill all righteousness. So, why should you be baptized? Why should you take the next step in obedience? Here's the first one you can write down. You should be baptized because it requires surrender of your will to God. It requires you to surrender your will to God. Jesus says, it is fitting for you to do this, John, not because I'm a sinner and I need to repent because Jesus was perfect in every way. Jesus is not in that water because he needs to declare repentance to the rest of the world. Jesus is in that water because God had ordained that Jesus would be at this moment, at this time, with John the Baptist to fulfill God's plan for Jesus' life and for the life and the will and purpose of God in the world righteousness, the right thing. Jesus says this is the right thing to do. Not only do I want to identify with the lost and broken people, but I want to identify with those who come and follow after me. I want them to do the same thing. And I want to identify with humanity, but also I'm going to surrender my will to the fathers. If Jesus has commanded baptism,
1: in other words, it's not optional, then to do anything else is to live in disobedience. Here's the crazy thing, folks.
0: Baptism, if you haven't been baptized, you're looking at baptism as this big thing. You don't want to get in front of people. You don't want to... You just don't want to have to go through that because maybe you're an introvert, maybe you're a person who likes to be behind the scenes, and the whole idea of being in front of a bunch of people and getting dunked underwater and messing your hair up and getting your clothes wet and all that stuff. you're dwelling on all that stuff, but you've got to understand to continue, to continue not following Christ's command for your life is to continue to not surrender your will to Christ. In other words, you're living in disobedience.. The reality is is that baptism is going to be the easiest thing that Christ ever asked you to do. I'm going to say that again. And, and disciples of Jesus, those of you who've been baptized, you've been following Jesus for a while. If you agree with this statement, I want you to give an amen. Jesus, this will be the easiest thing that Jesus ever asked you to do. I promise you. It's only going to get more
1: difficult from there. He, he's going to ask you, he, he's
0: going to ask you to, to talk about him he's going to ask you to bring him up he's going to ask you to share your testimony he's going to ask you to sacrifice part of your income to support his kingdom work globally he's going to ask the husbands to love your wives as christ loved the church and gave himself for it. wives he's going to ask you to submit to your husband's spiritual leadership in the home Children, he's going to ask you to submit to your parents' leadership in the home and to obey them. Parents, he's going to ask you to make sure you don't dishonor your kids, treat them harshly. Am I I making the point here? Baptism is the easiest step of your journey with Christ. From that point on, it gets difficult, and I am convinced until you surrender to baptism, you're not ready for the rest of it. Until you surrender your will in baptism, everything else is going to be a challenge. Everything else is going to be difficult. Everything else is going to be hard because you've never taken Jesus at His word to be baptized and surrender your will.
1: Jesus says, It is fitting for us to
0: fulfill all righteousness. Then He consented. In other words, John the Baptist consented to baptize Jesus. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water. Notice that. He went up from the water. The only way he can go up from the water is to have been gone down into the water first. Jesus went under the water. Every, every time we baptize someone in, in the in the baptism that we've got, or if we baptize somebody in a pool, or if you were baptized in a river, if you were stuck into the water, you are not only following Jesus in obedience, but you're following Jesus the same way Jesus was baptized. Exactly the same. In front of a bunch of people who are going to celebrate the fact that you have surrendered your will. Jesus was put down into the water, and he was brought up. Notice what happens. Behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Those unique moments in Scripture that should make us pause, this is one of them. Because right here in this text, you have all three parts of the Godhead Trinity present and accounted for. That's a rarity in Scripture. You have right here, you have Jesus, the Son of God, in the arms of John the Baptist being lowered down in the water. You've got the Holy Spirit taking on the shape of of a dove, lighting upon Jesus, And, and then... Another unique experience, you have God speaking audibly so so that the people on the bank could hear what God was saying. In other words, this wasn't some voice in Jesus' head. This was an audible voice that the people could hear, that John the Baptist heard, that the people on on the hillside could hear. God says in that moment after Jesus is baptized, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God affirms the identity of Jesus Christ. Publicly, audibly, in that moment, Jesus is no longer just a son of Joseph in a carpenter shop out of Nazareth. At that moment, Jesus is not just some other guy who happened to show up with the other crowd of people to come and receive repentance. No, in that moment when God speaks, and by the way, God had been silent for a long, long time. God speaks in this moment, and what he says is is about the identity of who this man is. This man is the son of the living God. Guess what Paul says about baptism in Romans chapter 6? You don't have to turn over there. But Romans 6 is one of the most important chapters concerning baptism, because in that chapter, Paul tells us that baptism tells a story of the change that Christ has made in your life. Baptism always follows salvation. Salvation, your faith in Jesus, the transformation that occurs, the adoption, the justification, being declared holy, that comes first. Then we follow that up with public baptism to tell the entire world of the change that God has already made in your life. Paul says in Romans 6 that we identify with Christ. How do we do that? Paul says it this way. He says, think of your baptism as dying to yourself. In other words, the Bible says that, and Paul says in Romans 6, that that when we came to faith in Christ, we died, you died. We we ceased to exist in that moment. And, And when I lay someone back in the water in a baptistry, it signifies their death.
1: But as I said at the beginning, I don't want to leave you there too long
0: because we want to celebrate the next part. And the next part is you resurrected to new life. You're a brand new creation, the new birth. The baptism tells the story of what has already happened. And listen, folks, when Paul says that in Romans chapter 6, he winds it all up by saying now that you you are identified with Christ in front of a group of people. There's accountability built in there. Not only that, he says now, no longer allow your flesh to be used in unrighteous ways. In other words, now that you've made this declaration of who you are and to whom you belong, now go live your faith out in Christ publicly. Here's the second reason you should be baptized. You should be baptized because it affirms your new identity. It affirms that new identity that Paul talks about in
1: Romans chapter 6. I have learned
0: down through the years that until we understand who we are in Christ, until we understand what happened in that moment of salvation, that we never really live out what Christ has for us to live out. It really is tied to that identity. Because when you begin to understand that you are no longer separated from God, you've been adopted into the family, you've been purchased with a prize, when you, when you begin to wrap your arms around all the beauty and the grace and the mercy of what God did in that moment, you can't help but talk about Jesus. You can't help but worship. You can't help but get in God's Word. When you begin to understand who you are in Christ, that identity changes everything. And that, that process of knowing who you are begins at that baptism. A public proclamation. But you're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God affirms Jesus' identity publicly. When you get baptized, you affirm your identity publicly and to whom you belong and the change that's been made in your life. Check out chapter 4, verse 1. So Jesus has completed His baptism. He's done what, exactly what God has asked Him to do. He's surrendered His will. His identity's been, uh, been confirmed and affirmed at that single moment. Guess what happens next? Verse, chapter 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Does Does that seem odd to you? Does it seem as though this, here we have this mountaintop experience of the Jordan River where God speaks audibly. What a celebration. What a time that would have been. But immediately after that, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. If you look at Mark's account, it's even stronger. Mark's account says that Jesus was drove or driven into the wilderness by the Spirit. Not only was Jesus' appointment at the Jordan River with John the Baptist preordained in eternity past, guess what else was preordained in eternity past? That Jesus would go out into the wilderness and he would fast for 40 days. And at the end of that 40 days, when his, his body has changed because of how long it has been since he's had any food. You would have been able to count every bone in his body. He's been out there in the wilderness without food for 40 days. And it's at the end of that 40 days, at the point when he is the, the most hungry he could possibly be. Now remember, Jesus is both God and man. And as a man, he suffered from hunger just like you do. So in that wilderness, he's suffering. And Satan shows up right at the pinnacle of his suffering.
1: What you're not going to see in chapter 4, you're
0: not going to see God's voice audibly. You're not going to see a crowd of people around who are celebrating the arrival of Messiah. What you're going to see is a man in in a wilderness place who's been fasting for so long, you can see it in his body.
1: And then Satan shows up. And after 40 days,
0: after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, the Greek language behind that can also be translated, since you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. I'm just going to take a wild guess here. But I suspect that for the Christians in this building, the disciples in this building who've been following Christ for a while, I think you can associate with what's happening here with with Jesus. Doesn't it seem as though when you are the weakest you've ever been in your flesh, you are weak, you've been through some stuff, a lot of stuff. Does it not seem like that's exactly the time the forces of darkness show up and all of a sudden present an opportunity for you to get out of your suffering, to to take some kind of shortcut around all this thing? Because, I mean, Who you'd have to admit that if you're born again, you're a child of the king. The king would never want you to suffer, would he?
1: Or could there be something God's going to do in the suffering? Listen, we all suffer. And Jesus is certainly
0: suffering. But notice what Satan offers him. Hey, since you're the son of God, God wouldn't want you to suffer out here. You're the son of God. Come on, you have power. You have the ability to change your circumstances. All you have to do is is these rocks right here, you, you you can say the word and these rocks will turn into bread. And you can eat and you can fulfill your flesh and you can feel better and you won't have to continue to suffer because there couldn't possibly be any point for this suffering in the desert,
1: could there? And Jesus
0: doesn't argue with Satan. Doesn't get into a debate. Jesus simply says, it is written, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. You know what Jesus says here? Jesus says there's more important things than physical suffering. Jesus says there's some things that are more important, and what's more important is my surrender to the Father and my identity and who I am and who He is and what He's doing in my life. Listen, I could take the shortcut. I could absolutely turn the stones into bread. But listen, there's something greater, and what is greater is living by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. In other words, Jesus says, my surrender to what God is doing in this moment is more important than turning a rock into a loaf of bread. You know where Satan attacks Jesus first? His surrender to God. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus is completely surrendered to God in the baptism. Jesus is completely surrendered in the fasting. And where does Satan attack first? In his surrender to God. And that's exactly what he does to you. Certainly, God wouldn't want you to be going through this. Why don't you just take a shortcut? Why don't you just just engage your flesh? Why don't you just do what you know you want to do that'll make you feel better and not worry about what God has to say because God wouldn't want you to suffer through what you're suffering, right? Satan has been doing the same thing all down through time and space and he's doing exactly the same thing to Jesus and Jesus knows who he is, And he knows what the Father's called him to do. He says, it is not by bread alone that we're going to live. It's by the Word of God. Notice what else Satan does. Then the devil takes him to the holy city and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. I think this is on the southwestern side of the temple overlooking the Kidron Valley. is a very, very high point. And he takes him up there and he says, if you are, since you are the Son of God, just throw yourself off this stone. Throw yourself off this wall. And, and then Satan gets a little tricky here. He goes and he quotes Psalm 91. And he pulls some verses from Psalm 91 and he says, hey, go and throw yourself off this pinnacle and, and he will command his angels concerning you and, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. In other words, say, if you throw yourself down, God's going to intervene. He's going to take care of you. Don't even worry about it. But Jesus says this, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, Satan wants Jesus to abandon his mission. Satan wants Jesus to abandon the mission of going to the cross and paying the sin debt for the whole humanity. If he can get Jesus to jump off this pinnacle, if he can get Jesus to just jump, then he'll sidestep the entire mission that Jesus has been given by God. He would no longer be in surrender to God. He would no longer be following God, but he would be in a place of disobedience. And that's exactly what Satan would have him do. He wants him to abandon the mission. He wants him to skip the cross. He wants him to do and take the easy path. Satan wants me to do the exact same thing. He just wants me to to take the easy road if at all possible, to never have to go through what Christ would have me go through for the purposes that Christ would have in that moment. In that moment, Satan is trying to get Jesus off of his mission and off of his focus. Notice what else Satan does here. He says, again, verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. I don't know how Satan did this, but I don't know if it played like a video or some images that Satan threw up in front of Jesus, but he says to Jesus, if you will will just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms and all the power and all the fame and all the wealth that goes along with it, if you'll just worship me. Now, first of all, Satan's lying through his teeth because Satan doesn't own the kingdoms
1: of this world. He tells Jesus that if he will just take the path of power, wealth, Political fame, then he'll then he'll have everything
0: that he needs. Notice what Jesus says. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and only him so you serve. Satan consistently attacks the mission, consistently attacks Satan's identity or Jesus' identity, consistently comes after Jesus' mission. Now, why do you think Satan does that? Why do you think he did it for Jesus? Why do you think he does it at you? Because if if Satan can get you to misunderstand your identity, if he can get you to focus on yourself, if he can get you to no longer surrender to God, if he can get you to no longer serve in the mission that Christ has put before you,
1: then Satan has accomplished his goal. So what's the third reason you should be baptized? To begin your mission. You have a mission that God has given you.
0: Here's the thing, folks. You won't ever complete that mission until you understand your identity, until you are surrendered to Christ And the first step that He said to you to be baptized by immersion in front of people who love you, want to celebrate with you, follow through with that. And then what that does is it sets you on a path of not only knowing who you are and to knowing to who you belong, it sets you on a path of surrendering in every other area of your life. Because the reality is, Christ is going to ask more and more and more and more of your life. You gave up ownership when you put your faith in
1: Jesus. Could it be? Could
0: it be? That every time a person comes to faith in Christ, we know that the Bible says there're angels in heaven rejoicing, right And God doesn't speak audibly in our world like he, like he did at one time. It's not because God has changed, it's because His word now speaks. But I have to wonder that, that every time we, we baptize someone, someone, someone comes forward and surrender to Christ in that first step of obedience and following him in baptism. I have to wonder if in that moment when we put them under the water, if the God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit together collectively says, Ah, well done, my son or my daughter, and you I am well pleased. Why would God say that? Because God, the Godhead Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is always going to rejoice in a disciple who surrenders their will to God's. Always. So what's keeping you from putting your faith in Jesus? What what is is it that's keeping you from taking that next step of putting your faith in Jesus and Him changing you from the inside out? Is it fear? Is it what other people think? And if you've already done that, what is keeping you from following that up with baptism? What is keeping you from being obedient and surrendering your will to Christ? Father in heaven, as we continue into this worship service, Father, it is It is my prayer that you would prepare our hearts for this time of response, but also this time we will gather around the table.
1: So, Father, this table, the bread and the cup, is reserved for those
0: who have put their faith in you. So, Father, for those who have not put their faith in you, Father, we ask that you would use this time of worship to draw them to the cross. Father, for the disciples in this room, for those who have put their faith in you, but have not followed that up with baptism, I pray, Father, that right now they would surrender their will to yours. Father, I believe they they resonate with the understanding of not being obedient in one area is causing them to be disobedient in others. So, Father, I pray that Right now, they would surrender all of that to you. Father, for those that have come to faith, followed it up with baptism, prepare our hearts to partake of the bread and the cup. This moment of worship is about remembering and anticipating. Remembering the sacrifice but anticipating your return. Father, if there's anything in our hearts that would prevent us from partaking of this, we would be willing to confess it as we sing this song together this morning. We love you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace. and We seek your face in this moment. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Baptist.